Greetings, travelers! Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your hosts, Fox and Sparrow. Vitam, while it's starting to become spring, I hope you are all ready for one more chilly tale today. Today's story is The Glass Mountain, which might seem a bit familiar once we get into it, and that is because all stories are connected in a cycle, and we have covered one of the possible origins of this story, which, if you may remember, is the Egyptian story of the doomed prince. Not to say it is the origin of this story, because many stories can bubble up independently of one another, but the doomed prince is one of the earliest known archetypes of the princess on the glass mountain or glass hill trope. There are a surprising amount of variants to this story from all over the world, including uh, Afghanistan, India, Eastern European countries like Poland, West Africa, and Norway. And there's so many more. So be sure to stick around for the five fantastic finds to learn more about the origins of this trope. One thing I was looking up while I was reading the story was because sometimes like different things in literature, like it symbolizes stuff and it's like more universal. Like, oh, yeah, this symbolizes that. And that's like just how it's understood. And I went looking up what the symbol of like glass in the story means. And everything just came up with, if you see glass in your dreams, these are your fears or your hopes and desires. I'm like, I don't care about my dreams. I want to know about literature and folklore. And they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but dreams, man. So. But did you check your tea leaves recently? You know, I was too busy looking in the sand trying to read my future. Um, I, I got to go back to the tea leaves, figure that one out. <laughs> So this specific variant was originally compiled by Herman Kletke before being translated into Andrew Lang's Yellow Fairy Book. And some of the fragments of the story are seen in the Brothers Grimm story, Old Rink Rink. And as a lover of fairy tale retellings, I would be amiss if I did not mention Gail Carson Levine's Cinderella's and the Glass Hill, which was part of the fairy retellings that I really, really enjoyed as a kid. I'm not sure if you've ever read them. Because they're kind of niche now, I think. But they were just really fun, whimsical takes on all these different fairy tales that um, Gail Carson-Levy did. And she's written so many good fairy tale retellings. So if you are looking for a more modern take on this story, I definitely recommend it. Mm, Well, I will definitely love to check this out after this because I really enjoyed this tale. I think she writes in a quite a funny way. So it's really fun to read to kids or to, you know, younger audiences. But they're still enjoyable as adults, I think, because Mm -hmm. it's just nice to pick out the stuff that you missed. I think the king in this story was called uh, King Harumph, (laughs) which is just a sound. Yes, Harumph. And there's also her poetry book, I'm Sorry I Meant to Do It, which, again, as a kid, it's funny. As an adult, it's funny. I just think Gail Carson Levine is an absolute hero. So shout out to her for sparking my love of fairy tale retellings. Well, travelers, if you're looking for a familiar but new variant of a brave youth rescuing a princess, then you have come to the right place. So relax and get cozy for a while as we tell the tale of the Glass Mountain. Once upon a time, there was a glass mountain. We can only speculate how a mountain made of glass is even possible, but the imagery here is quite pretty. And to make it even more fantastical, There was a palace which was made of pure gold that sat atop the mountain. Outside the castle's gates grew a golden tree which grew golden apples. These apples were not just beautiful, but they were also the key to getting admittance into the golden castle. Honestly, 
This sounds like something I would read in a gossip magazine or like a conspiracy forum. The super rich build private glass mountain and put a golden palace on top of it. Along with some janky debunked photos, but still feels plausible enough where you can't help but wonder if it's real or not. King Charles builds a glass mountain to hide his wealth away from the plebs during the energy crisis. <laughs> Read more about it. <laughs> but it says on the side of it, we're in this together. <laughs> Thank you for helping heat my, you know, my enormous glass castle. Giving back to the people because we bring in tourism to my glass mountain. But in all seriousness, the golden apple tree is kind of like that in Greek mythology, and it is mentioned in several myths. It doesn't have any real function besides being something to desire. So the golden apple tree and the golden apples were originally a gift to Hera from Gaia for her marriage to her brother husband Zeus, and she placed them in the Garden of the Hesperides, which is where they were guarded by a dragon. And then they do end up playing quite a key part in the myths of Hercules, or Heracles, um, Atalanta, and the Trojan War itself. They were basically apples of discord that brought more pain than beauty. And I mean, as far as I'm aware, they didn't really do anything magical, like give you life or give you extended health or anything like that. It just seemed like they were a status symbol. I mean, Heracles had to go through and get them. That was part of his labors. During her races to see if she would marry anyone, Atalanta ended up she ended up picking them up off the ground and getting distracted by them. Again, not because they were anything besides being really pretty to look at, and she was fascinated by them. And then, of course, during the Trojan War, Paris had to give the apple to the fairest of the goddesses between Athena, Aphrodite, and Hera. And that caused a massive strife, uh, one of the biggest, actually. So it'll be interesting to see what role they play in this story if they're actually something that causes more discord than beauty or they might just be a symbol of the glass mountain and the princess being not what they seem but the real question is how do you think it tastes do you think it tastes like what's the one that sounds good but is actually gross the is it red delicious is it like gosh what is it called i don't know i don't like the yellow ones i don't like yellow apples they taste disgusting to me I like pink ladies and pink ladies I are like, great. oh, what are those? Like, I like um, Granny Smith apples. Granny well. Smith apples are the bomb. I also really like a honey crisp. But yeah, I wonder how this would taste. Uh, if it's like, if it's like, not very good. Yeah, if it's golden color, it's on the yellow spectrum, which is usually like a little softer and not as sweet, a little more tart, which is not really my jam. Mm. Anyways, well, I always it's just not want your jam, it's your sauce. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it'd be good as a cider that wasn't even <laughs> anyways I stand by it yeah moving on this magnificent golden palace was filled with more riches and gems than you could imagine and since this is a fairy tale there's also a beautiful and fair princess who lives here tales of this beautiful rich princess spread and knights from all over came and attempted to climb the glass mountain but alas None could get even halfway up, even though some were riding horses with sharpened hoofs. All would eventually fall down the slippery mountain, breaking various bones and many instantly perishing. From her window, the beautiful and fair princess watched as one by one knights came and attempted to climb this mountain. Though the sight of her gave the knights courage, none could reach her. After nearly seven years, 
there were piles of corpses at the mountain's base. In this graveyard-like place, there were also many injured knights who were simply trapped and were just too injured to leave. So, the story does this weird thing about this point where it starts talking a lot about how it's almost seven years of her waiting, and it alludes the princess must be saved before these seven years are up or something. But I don't see it anywhere in like the readings I did that like what the consequences would be for that or what would happen if she wasn't rescued. So it keeps talking about it like, oh, only one more day till seven years pass or something. But it's like, why do I care? Can we go into the eighth year? Is there anything wrong with that? No, I don't know. I think maybe it's just the number seven is such a popular number to use in folklore. And so it might have just come from another story. It might have been that there was something that actually does happen after the seven years. And as the story was told and then retold, it kind of lost, got lost in the process, you know? Mm -hmm. What I think might happen is she might die. It might be a curse because glass mountains just don't appear out of nowhere. So someone had to have built it and put her up there. So my best guess is maybe a curse that belonged in some original story. Because in The Doomed Prince, uh, the girl's father put her up there and then said that people would have to climb up to get to her and that would be his son-in-law. So maybe it's one of those bridegroom stories. Mm. Or evil witch stories. We don't know. Either way, I just wanted to point that out because I thought it was interesting. I was tempted to leave it out just because it, it didn't add anything. But it's also just weird enough. Where I was like, let's talk about, about this. Uh, I like add a footnote. Let's add a footnote. I personally like to think that when they were telling the story, they told the whole story like the end. And then someone's like, you did not do your seven quota. You need to add seven in here. There could be seven apples. Nope. That's too many apples. Do something else. It could have been seven years. Good job. Add that in. (laughs) Like an editor coming in, editing a story. That's my headcanon. Like, where's your numbers? Like, did you have all of your checklist? Your folklore checklist marks complete. Or bingo card or something like that. I don't know. Yep. You have your princess. You have a dragon. You have a castle. You have some kind of magical item. Mm-hmm. You have some magical creatures in there. Do you have the number seven? Ooh, I'm sorry. We cannot start circulating your story until you add seven in there. <laughs> Anyways, so three days before it would be seven years. Right up to the deadline. Right at this very ominous deadline, three days before it's been seven years. A knight clad in golden armor, riding a spirited steed, came. Cue dramatic music. The knight charged halfway up the mountain before turning around and immediately going back down. The next day, he charged up the mountain once more, and this time he got very close to the top before being attacked by a giant eagle. Unfortunately for our golden boy, his horse then slipped and both fell down the mountain, leaving nothing but their bones behind, which rattled in the golden armor. Wah, wah. Usually the golden knight is the one that gets the girl, so I'm kind of like, hmm, what in the Baba Yaga is this? I know, I was like, here we go. Here's our protagonist coming and saved. Nope, nope, you did. You very did. So now that Golden Boy's out of the picture, there was only one day before the end of the seven years. We're really down to the wire before the thing happens or doesn't. I don't know. Enter our unnamed hero, a happy-go-lucky schoolboy. And it's probably safe to assume he has spiky, brightly colored hair 
because we got a protagonist showing up, man. He had heard the tales of the princess and all the fallen knights who went up to try and save her. But he was determined to try his luck and try and, like, you know, probably show up these other guys being like, well, you couldn't do it. I bet I can. Before beginning the climb, he tracked and caught a lynx. Taking the creature's sharp claws, he then fastened the claws to his hands and feet, wolverine style, and began the climb. By the time the sun started to set, he was only at the halfway point, and he was already quite exhausted. His feet were worn and bleeding, so he could only use his hands to climb further. As he looked down, he saw the abyss of bodies of all the knights who that had tried and failed before him. When night finally came, he could climb no more. He gave in to his exhaustion, fell asleep, relaxed his body, and was ready to accept his fate. But the claws were firmly dug into the glass, so he did not fall. This then begs the question of, like, how malleable the glass is. Like, he dug his claws in there, but, like, I don't think they should be, like, sitting firmly in there the way glass works. Is it a solid glass mountain? I'm gonna just play the magical bird does magical things, kinda. Well, not magical bird, sorry. Magical creature does magical things card. It's magic. Don't think too hard. Don't worry about it. It's like, this, this is a story. Let's just forget about the logistics of things for a second, because if we were going to, I mean, we'd have to start with the glass mountain and the prospect of aliens. Ooh, ooh, I actually like that. I like that. I didn't actually think about that one. I was thinking a wizard, but this is way more interesting. All right. So putting that aside, magic is magic. Things are happening. Remember that giant eagle that killed the golden knight from before? Well, that eagle guards the golden apple tree, and every evening he flies around the mountain to protect it from those pesky people. As the eagle was making the rounds, he saw the sleeping youth in the moonlight. Hungry for fresh meat, the eagle swooped down at the boy, but unbeknownst to the eagle, the boy was actually awake, and he was not going down without a fight. The eagle sunk its talons into the youth, but he refused to cry out in pain. Instead, he clutched the eagle's feet with his hands. In terror, the eagle flew up and circled the castle. The boy, hanging for dear life saw the magnificent castle and the beautiful but sad princess on a balcony. Realizing how close he was to his goal, he took out a pocket knife and cut off the eagle's feet. You know, instead of just simply, like, letting go, you know. <laughs> Screeching out in pain, the eagle flew high into the dark clouds as the boy fell into the branches of the apple tree. Very convenient. After a sigh of relief that he survived the fall, the boy tended to his wounds. First, he removed the claws that were still stuck in him. Then, he took some peels from a golden apple and wrapped them over the wound. Within moments, the wound was healed as if it had never been there at all. After pocketing several of these golden apples, he entered the castle to find a great dragon guarding it. Without missing a beat, he threw an apple at the dragon and the beast immediately vanished. Now that the dragon was gone, he looked around to see the courtyard was filled with beautiful flowers, and the enchanting princess was watching from an onlooking balcony. She ran to him as her husband and gave him all of her riches. And so, 
he became a rich and mighty ruler, but he never returned to Earth. You see, only the guardian of the castle and the princess could possibly carry the treasure safely down the mountain. And that guardian was the mighty eagle. The same eagle the youth killed on his way up and whose body landed in a nearby woods. It does seem quite on point that he shows up, saves the princess, and then he's like, I'm going to be the ruler. Can you carry this stuff down? Or <laughs> right? not really expecting how she's supposed to carry anything down either. Yeah. The, the one thing that gets me is like, you have all these riches. What good are your riches if there's no economy to be like trading them? And, like, sure, you got a bunch of shiny stuff, but, like, you're pretty isolated up there, and you don't really have people to show off to. Yeah, I'm I'm also kind of, like, because he's, like, he became a rich and mighty ruler, but I'm, like, a ruler of what? Exactly. Like, you married the princess, you're on a glass mountain, you have lots of money, but, like, you don't have any subjects. So who are you the ruler of? The princess who, you know, made you the, the king in the first place? Okay. I was also so annoyed with the princess. Like, we've we've had some really good, strong female leads in the past couple episodes. And then just to see this girl be like, oh, I'm so sad and lonely. I see this man approach. He's going to be my husband, and I will just literally give him everything. It's like, oh, girl. I mean, don't knock the Princess Fiona vibes. We're into those. But I'm just like, I wish there was a little bit more to the story after the the golden apples get, you know. Just because I'm, I'm trying to figure out what was the prize you know like most stories there's like a prize at the end or you rescue the princess and then you take her back to her people or you become the ruler you know together but like I just see two people on top of a glass mountain still so it's not like she got rescued off the glass mountain she's just now stuck with what could potentially be a really bad roommate so we don't know but let's not forget we have avoided the ominous seven-year thing so yeah. there's that. <laughs> what if he was the, the thing that was going to happen after the seven years? He shows oh. up and, you know, just he's the curse. Oh, my gosh. The Golden Knight was actually the true hero, but he messed up. And now this guy, which I'm going to start naming Jack, just showed up <laughs> and was like, I'm the bad thing that's happened in seven years. It's like, it's me. I'm the problem. Because technically he starts climbing the mountain when there was just one day left. but like. Well into the night is when the eagle attacks him. So it was probably actually the next day. He actually comes on the exactly seven years. So he's the literal problem. Because see, I this is the part of the story that really confuses me is usually, you know, the golden knight is the one that gets it. And the one version of the story that I read had been Cinderella's and um, the glass hill. So in that version... You know, he goes up the mountain three times, once in a gold suit, once in a black suit, and I think once in a silver suit or something. But to me, the golden knight, the one that's, you know, dressed in a certain way, those are usually the heroes. So I'm kind of like, hmm, side-eyeing him and his wolverine-like claws to get up there because it's a bit sketchy. Yeah, this is a, it's interesting one, but there's actually more story to tell. We're not actually quite done yet. Um, (laughs) You see... Some time later, the youth, or Jack as we're calling him now, I'm calling him, <laughs> noticed <laughs> a large group of people at the base of the mountain. I guess these are the subjects? I don't know what he's ruling. Using a swallow as a messenger, he asked what was going on down below. The swallow quickly went down to investigate and returned, 
saying the eagle's blood had restored life to all the knights that died trying to climb up the mountain, and they were now waking up as if they had been asleep all this time. And that is the story of the Glass Mountain. So everyone lives at the end, except for the eagle. Yay! There's no consequences to anything. Yeah, well, Jack is stuck in that mountain. He can't bring his treasure down, so... But he's fine. He's rich. He's the next dragon. Yeah, he's got the queen. Oh, the dragon was actually the last guy. <gasps> it's a cycle. <laughs> oh gosh. There is no princess. <laughs> Conspiracy theory here is just busting this all wide open. <laughs> I know everyone was wondering about our thoughts on this. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, let's take the glass mountain and ruin it. Well, cinema sins. Yeah. Everything wrong with the glass mountain. Pretty much. Ding. Uh, no. <laughs> I, I should probably be more positive about stories. I feel like I'm ripping them up a lot. It's just so much fun. I really did enjoy this, though. I did, too. I was not ready for half of the, the twists and turns that, that came up because I was very ready for, you know, very straightforward. And in many ways, it's still straightforward. There's always just a fun little tweak here, tweak there in these stories that I'm just not ready for. And um, mm-hmm. I like the Wolverine moment. I'm like, okay, that's kind of fun. <laughs> the, uh, and then I liked how he's actually stuck at the end. Like, oh, cool. A consequence. That's fun. It's like it's not all sunshine and daisies, Jack. But also that image of all those corpses just trapped at the bottom there. And some of them are, like, people are still alive, but they're just trapped and they can't get out because they're just piled with corpses. Like, that was such a creepy imagery going on. Yeah, and it came at, like, the end for me. So I was just kind of like, hmm, I love this. And probably some of them have horses because some people did try, at least in some of the other versions of the story, people had, some people did try and, you know, run their horses up like the knight did. So there's probably horses, there's probably people, there's probably, you know, people trying to, like, dig through the bodies to find their family members. It's a great sight. And then they all came to life immediately. Probably some of them died immediately, just being crushed by the weight of the people above them. (laughs) Or, you know, the horses that came back to life and, like, just started kicking around. We love it. (laughs) That's right. Oh, my gosh. Um, But we're not thinking about that, because magic, right? (laughs) No. We only think about the bibbidi-boppity-boop good stuff. Exactly. Not the bibbidi-boppity-boo bad stuff. Well, sometimes talk a bit about that. I mean, we talk about that quite a lot, actually. Me too. As, as pointed out uh, several times, it's fine. But yeah, you know, just because we kind of make fun of it doesn't mean we don't enjoy it. And this, this story, I thought, was just lots of, a, a lot of cool, interesting stuff. And um, I like how we can find it connected to other stories, like we said. It's probably connected to the Doomed Prince that we covered last year. I like how this idea of a glass mountain or hill was just so... The image was impactful enough where people just kept wanting to put in their stories. Mm-hmm. And, and I get that. It's really pretty. This idea of like you had a big mountain, but you could see kind of right through it. It's almost like it's an invisible mountain in that way. Like, oh, is it there? Is it not there? I mean, as long as there's been folklore, there's been people trying to put women up on top of mountains, so... At least we've got that going. <laughs> it's true. Hey, there's a mountain there. Should we put a girl on it? <laughs> and then some guy can save her. They'll probably die on the way up, so we should just have, like, a graveyard dedicated right over here. While the brave youth did need to retrieve a golden apple to get to the princess and the treasure, we have also gone through our own journeys to bring you our five fantastic finds. Number one. 
this folktale is impressive in its span and its variety. Usually called the princess on the glass hill, it can be seen in Norwegian, Swedish, Middle Eastern, Egyptian, Indian, and even Scottish stories to name a few. It is often connected in two parts, with the first part being about the hero and his horse, which has led to some critics arguing that this story must have originated from an equestrian society. However, the earliest known version of the princess in the tower trope comes from the tale of the doomed prince, which dates back to the Egyptian dynasties 19th and 20th. There are also many theories that argue the origins of the story come from India and traveled upwards through to Russia and Europe. In most of the Indian variants, and there are almost as many as there are Polish variants, there are horses ravaging the king's garden. The hero has to stop them before using one of the captured horses to win a suitor contest. And usually this involves a ball and a rooftop instead of a glass mountain. There will be a list and map of the different variants on our website show notes, so check that out if you are interested. The diversity of these stories is crazy, with everything from transformations into ravens, ogres, storytelling contests, vigils for kings, and more magical horses than you can count. Number two. When I first read this story, I thought for sure the knight clad in golden armor would be the hero saving the princess. But thanks to the eagle guardian, it was not meant to be. Instead, the golden knight serves more as another warning of the dangers ahead as the decoy protagonist. A decoy protagonist is a trope used by the author purposefully to mislead the audience about the real protagonist in the story. These are often short-lived divergence, especially in the case when this is played for laughs. This can be seen at the start of the Legend of Vox Machina series, where the opening moments show an epic, tough-looking group of heroes who are ready to face danger head-on, only for them to be immediately wiped out. After which, we go on to meet our real heroes who are currently drunk at a tavern. This provides fun levity and shows how imperfect our heroes really are. Sometimes the deco hero is actually the antagonist. After all, villains are heroes of their own stories, so it's no surprise that their stories wouldn't start similarly to a protagonist. In Assassin's Creed 3, the first three memories that the player experiences are of Haytham Kenway. And at the end of the third memory, it is revealed that Haytham is actually a part of the Templars, the enemy group of the Assassin Order, and players continue the rest of the game playing as Haytham's son, Connor Kenway. This sets up the antagonistic dynamic between the two, and it feels a little more personal to the player since they have been in the shoes of each of these characters. There are many reasons this trope can come about, but it's an interesting one because it's always used to subvert the audience expectations. And honestly, this is the first time I can recall seeing folklore trying to subvert my expectations like this, which makes this moment a welcome surprise. Number two. We've talked about stock characters before on this podcast, specifically with Jack from English folklore and Vasilisa or Ivan from Slavic folklore. Well, today we are about to introduce to you the Norwegian Ashlad or Askladen. His name comes from the fact that he is often given the dirty work in the family or sleeps among the ashes. Later translations and stories will rebrand him as Cinderlad to go with the imagery of Cinderella, or more commonly known as Boots. This character features in a variety of tales as an underachieving younger brother who often has to use unconventional methods to succeed after his brothers try the conventional ones. In one example, the brothers need to rescue a princess trapped east of the sun, west of the moon, and Ashlad is the one who ends up doing it with a Viking ship. And no, there is no bearing to this story and the one of East of the Sun, West of the Moon, which features the princess having to rescue the magical prince. 
It does seem that collectors Abjornsen and Moe gave him a rather clean, heroic edit, with many other tales labeling him as more of a thief or a scoundrel character akin to Robin Hood. Either way, this resourceful character is one of my favorite stock characters due to his out-of-the-box thinking and his cleverness. Number 4. Fox briefly talked about golden apples and their connection to Greek mythology early in the story, but you might be more familiar with them from their appearance in modern video games. In Assassin's Creed franchise, golden apples, also known as Apples of Eden, are powerful MacGuffin objects. These are artifacts from a distant past and are mainly used as a driving force for many of the game entries. The player rarely actually interacts with them directly and is mostly used in cutscenes to reveal big moments or actually concludes the game entirely. In Minecraft, golden apples are a rare consumable item that has limited healing and regeneration effects. And this is actually similar to how our protagonist in today's tale uses the golden apple as he heals his wounds with the apple skin. But on the other hand, there's also the real apple named the Golden Delicious. And as we mentioned in this episode, neither Fox or I are a fan of these apples. Honestly, simply, they're just better apples out there. So there you go. If you see them in a video game, go ahead, grab them. They'll probably help you down the line. But if you see them in a grocery store, maybe consider getting a Honeycrisp or a Pink Lady instead. Number five. We've talked about Gilded Cages before in our Doomed Prince episode, but let's focus specifically on the Maiden in the Tower here. In the fairy tale variants seen in this episode and the Doomed Prince, the Tower is a challenge for suitors and a way for them to determine who is worthy of the princess. However, the origins of this motif are usually more in line with keeping the princess's virginity intact and keeping suitors away. Let's examine how the narrative has shifted. One of the earliest stories collected with this theme is in the 5th century BC with Danae and the Golden Shower, and not that kind of golden shower. King Acrisius of Aragos locks his daughter, Princess Danae, in a tower after hearing a prophecy that her son would end up killing him. Zeus, because of course it's Zeus, rains down upon her in a golden shower and gets her pregnant. Eventually their son Perseus does kill his grandfather, the King of Argos. Another story, a Jewish narrative from the 8th century, has King Solomon locking his daughter away for similar reasons. In a previous series of episodes, we touched on the love story of Zal and Rudiba from Ferdosi's Shaname, which is where we start to see the climbing of the hair, which becomes prevalent in most Rapunzel retellings later on. And then of course, in the late 12th century, there is the story of Floris and Blanchefleur, which is again about keeping lovers apart. To shift to where the suitor contest starts to appear, we need to travel to the Pros Ida of Snorri Sturluson. So in his stories, Brunhild lived on a mountain where a wall of flame surrounded her and she would only marry the man who could pass through the flames. So now we have a situation where the hill is a challenge and not a separation. As J.R.R. Tolkien once said, the cauldron of story has always been boiling and to it have continually been added new bits, dainty and undainty. So here we can see how the narrative of keeping a princess locked in a tower and away from suitors has over time kind of changed into inviting the suitors to come and challenge themselves to actually be worthy of her hand. There'll be lots more stories, of course, from all around the world, so if you can think of any, please do send us a message or comment on the blog post. As always, if you want to see the show summary, then subscribe for updates on our website at talesfromtheenchantforest.com. And if you want to hear more from us, join us on Twitter at From Enchanted or on Instagram, Mastodon, or TikTok by our podcast name. For questions, comments, and guest requests, please send us an email to talesmechantforest at gmail.com. And if you have anything to share, then please don't hesitate.
Remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard today and what we do here, then please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest. <laughs>